Amen. Uh, thank you, Vicki. And good morning to all of you. Uh, I'm excited to be back up here with you. Uh, my name is Austin Snively. I'm the director of student ministry here at Redeemer, and I'm just uh, grateful for the opportunity to be up here this morning and continue our series in Isaiah. Uh, but before we get to the text, I want to start in kind of an odd place. We're going to start with the song Imagine by John Lennon, which most of you are probably familiar with. Uh, but for those of you who aren't, the opening lines are, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. In the next verse, he goes on to ask everybody to imagine the benefits of a world without religion. But what's so interesting is he wrote that song dreaming about a utopian culture, this perfect kingdom that had the ideals of uh, peace, security, comfort, generosity, but he thought it'd come from secularism. He thought it'd come from running away from God. And what he was really dreaming of were the blessings of God's presence. But he didn't want God. He wanted the kingdom on his own terms. And that's not unique to him. If we take a quick survey of human history or even just examine our own hearts, we can see that's the case in pretty much all of us. If you go back to the beginning in time in the Garden of Eden, we wanted the fruit, but we didn't want God's presence. You go to the Tower of Babel, we try to construct this great city uh, to show that we don't need God, show that we can be God. The kingdom of Israel in Judges, where it's the common refrain, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Moving out of the Bible, we can even see it in current movement of identity to politics and just the divisiveness there because everybody thinks their ideals are going to produce this perfect culture and the other side is just going to damn us to hell. See, man has always felt that perfection is right around the corner. It's something that we can achieve on our own and we'll plan and scheme our way to it. Whether that's through the next technological advancement, medical treatment, uh, the next president that we elect, the next policy that they enact, that's all it's going to take. And if we just have that, we'll get the perfect kingdom. But what we find is it never actually gets us there. It's never satisfying. There's always something else wrong, something else to overcome. And it just leaves us empty and longing for more. And I think what Isaiah is going to show us this morning is that we're really longing for our heavenly home. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we can read that the Lord has placed eternity in our hearts. Guys, we're created to long for that. We're created to long for the kingdom that we read in our assurance of pardon this morning in Revelation. We're created to long for this dwelling of perfection with other men and with God. But the history of the world shows us really quickly that we want that and we try to get it by running away from the king we want his kingdom and not him. But Isaiah offers us a new way to see the world. Rather than running from the Lord to create a good kingdom or a good culture, Isaiah will show us the only way to find is really just to run to him, to rest in him. So as we look at the text this morning, uh, you can follow the outline in your worship folder. We'll see complacency and how that can bring ruin, uh, how we have renewal in the spirit and dependence on him, and how we find the source of renewal in the king himself. Uh, so, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If not, it's in your worship folder, and I think it'll be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 32 and parts of 33 as well. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. 
You complacent daughters give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your chest for the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people grows up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses, for the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy of donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is teemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. O Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there, the Lord and his majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go nor majestic ship can pass, for the, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king, and he will save us. Uh, amen. As we read that, I feel like the, it's just so hopeful in those last few verses. Uh, and you can really see the subtitle of our series because it starts with the hard stuff. The subtitle of our series is Disturbing the Comfortable and Comforting the Disturbed. And starting in chapter 32, you can really see that. Before we can get to the renewal, we have to look at what gets us there. And so in chapter 32, verses 9 through 14, we can really see how the Lord is unsettling us in our comfort and our complacency. Those words, complacent and at ease, they're used five times in the first five verses of our text, and that should catch our attention. Repetition is a really good note for something that the Lord's trying to draw our attention to. Uh, so you can see it there. You women who are at ease, you complacent daughters. He says it over and over again. And I think what he's trying to communicate is the people felt secure in their own power, their own wealth, and their own abilities. At the time, Jerusalem was experiencing uh, greater security and wealth than they had in a long time. And it was all in part because of an alliance that their king had made with Egypt uh, to great trade and just generally their own uh, schemes and plans that had created this wealth for themselves. And much of Isaiah's ministry is spent warning people not to put their hope and trust in their own strategy, schemes, and strength, but to turn back to the Lord. But y'all, we're 30-something chapters in, and they haven't done that yet. Um, so the message has been the same, though. 
Turn back, repent, love the Lord your God, and submit to his kingship. And that's the same message it is for us now. But instead, we see the people put their hope in the harvest they plant, in the homes they build, in the walls and defenses they construct. They love their comfort, their wealth, and their independence. And I just have to ask y'all, is that starting to sound familiar? Because to me, it sounds a lot like the Western church. It sounds a lot like us. We have all these strategies to relate to God, to reach this perfect utopian culture, society, existence, uh, to build our own little kingdoms, and it creates this toil and vanity that's frankly kind of exhausting. And what the Lord is saying there in those first five verses is that all the things we plant, all the houses we build, the defenses we've constructed, they're all going to fail us if they're done in our own strength. The idols of wealth and comfort and security are brought to ruin the fields, the vines, the houses. They're forsaken, destroyed, overtaken. Nothing is left. If you look there in verse 13, a particular place you can, you can really see the imagery is Isaiah says thorns and briars. Now, we can kind of gloss over what uh, is being conveyed there because they, they sound the same to us. But really... In the Hebrew, that word for thorn was associated with a plant that was common. It would grow up in a cultivated garden. Anybody had to deal with it. It could be anywhere. Uh, But briar, it was a word associated with a plant that was only found in the desert. A place that's dry and dead and not cultivated. It's wild and overrun. And I think what Isaiah is telling us is that the Lord has made us to be in this cultivated garden, this place where we can grow into something beautiful under his rule, under his law, in his kingdom. But by running away from that and running away from him to our idols, we end up creating something in our sin that is dead. Something that resembles a barren wasteland, a desert. And so as we read this, it should prompt us to reflect and examine our lives. Where are we too comfortable in our own strategies and schemes? Where are we trying to earn the good life for ourselves? What is dulling our hearts to the greatness and the beauty of God as our King and our Father? And what are you centering your life around other than Him? Uh, For me, one of the things it was was preparing for this sermon so I could get up here and do well and, you know, feel good about, oh yeah, I do good at my job, that's great. Uh, but it's, it's a million things. It could be the money in your bank account, how many likes you get on an Instagram post, as silly as that is. Uh, it could be in how well-behaved your kids are. It could be how many people like you. The things you think you can control really create opportunities for us to uh, have idols. And we cling to them because they create that illusion of control. They create the illusion of power that we can build ourselves up without God. But I think dealing with COVID over the last two years shows us that that's really not the case. Uh, It it just continues to wreak havoc on our society and in the world around us. No matter how many thousands of scientists and doctors and great minds go towards trying to curb and beat this thing, we just haven't been able to do it. Politicians have tried with similar levels of pretty much no success to curb it with policies. Uh, There's this no-win situation where people are mad at you for doing one thing or not doing that thing. Uh, And so it's just, it's created this, uh, this culture 
of hate and divisiveness because our ideals, our ideologies, they're failing us. Our illusions of power and control are coming crashing down around us and everybody's upset about it. And there's a spiritual reminder in that physical reality. We face enemies that are far too big for us to overcome in our own strength. This passage is in the context of Assyria coming and leveling the city of Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah is talking about here when he's warning the complacent people of Israel. And that opponent was far too big for them. There was a military opponent they could not overcome in their own strength. This virus is too big an opponent for you and I, and the true enemies of sin and death are the same thing. They are too big of an opponent for anybody who comes up against them in their own power. See, God was warning Jerusalem of the coming physical judgment. They had forgotten God, and the result was he's faithfully removing the things that made them feel secure in their own power. And Isaiah is warning us of a greater spiritual destruction that awaits those of us whose hope lies in our own strength. Uh, This is a question of kingdoms. Is it ours that we're trying to build or is it his that we're trying to build? Is it ours that we're after or his that we're seeking? Because no foreign policy is going to come lay siege to your house and burn your fields. That's not really the world we live in anymore. But we do have a great spiritual enemy who will come lay siege to your heart. And that's something we have to be aware of because he's way, way stronger than we are. But we sang it earlier in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word will fail him. We have somebody who is greater than him, but it's not us. But the Lord is telling us that he will faithfully come and remove anything in our lives that dulls our sense of need and worship for him. And it leaves us with no choice but to turn back to him. He'll allow a small-scale suffering to prevent an eternal suffering for his people. Do y'all know that about him? Do we know that about him? I don't live like that's always true. But he'll allow hard things in our lives to make us aware of our need and draw us back to him and his provision. It's an invitation to come back to him. And it shows the effort of self-salvation, living from our own desires. It creates this culture of selfishness, complacency, and scheming. And the Lord loves his people too much to let that spiritually deaden us. And so now we get to come to the good news. He doesn't leave us there. He works to renew us, and that's what we read in verse 15. And it's actually the same sentence as verse 14. It's this really abrupt change. If you read it, the palace is forsaken, the city's deserted, the hills, the houses, the watchtowers, they're overrun and wild until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And then it becomes a fruitful field. And peace and justice and righteousness dwell there. That abrupt change the first time I read the passage uh, this week, I had to make sure I didn't turn the page to the wrong place, that I was actually reading the same passage. But it's so great because that it drew me back in. It made me really think about what I was reading, and I think that's why it's constructed that way, is it draws you back to the Spirit being poured out on us, and that being our hope. It offers us great hope on the other side of being unsettled, that the Lord will remove things faithfully, but he also promises to restore All throughout the prophets, God has offered this theme of renewal through a remnant. And really what it is, is he allows judgment to come in to prune back the sinful behaviors in the people of Israel. That's cutting away something. But on the other side of that cut comes new growth and more bearing of good fruit. And that's the promise here. 
Beautiful fruit and growth can occur on the other side of hard things because the Spirit is poured out and He begins to reverse the corrosive effects of our sin on us and the world around us, and that is good news. He's pushing back on the wilderness that we've created, restoring the earth to a place that we can dwell with Him again, just like in the Garden of Eden and just like in Revelation that we read earlier this morning. We're not left to make this world perfect because he's promised to do it. He's promised to make things right and beautiful and good once more to make all sad things come untrue. And the better news is we aren't left wondering, waiting what that looks like because we've already seen what it looks like to have the spirit poured out. If you jump forward to Acts chapter two, we see the spirit of God poured out on the people of God and the change that it brings to the world around them. God isn't just promising to come and renew the world. He's promising that anyone filled with his spirit that trusts in him and has beheld him as the king is a nexus for the kingdom of God. Wherever we are, he's faithfully working to bring his kingdom there. Where thorns and briars were overrunning our hearts, the spirit rips them out and replaces them with good fruit. The fruit of righteousness, of justice, and peace. And we can see that it's not a work of our own power or our own will. It's a work only from the Lord. We are passive. He is active. He's the agent of change and we're the object of change. That imagery used by Isaiah of undoing what our complacency has created, it shows us where we've created wilderness, the Spirit of God will create a fruitful field. In the fruitful field, justice and righteousness are there. That's right relationship with God and right relationship with people. That's the fruit that the people of God should be bearing wherever the Holy Spirit's been poured out on us. And only in complete dependence on Holy Spirit to shape us into those kind of people, to make us bear good fruit, is where we can find hope. The kingdom comes by trusting him to renew individual hearts that long for the kingdom, but not just for the kingdom, but also for the king. Because he's where we get Holy Spirit. And that's where we get what we find in chapter 33 in the reign of the king. Because we've already said that people are longing for the kingdom. That's, what, uh, that's why I started with imagine. He's longing for something good. He's longing for a culture with all these great ideals in it. But he can't get there by himself. And so if the Spirit of God is our source for renewal and we long for the kingdom, we're still faced the question, how do we get the Spirit? And we only get it from the king. And look there in verse 17. Behold the king in his beauty. And it's not in your worship folder there, but if you look back in verses 14 through 16, I kind of changed what I was uh, looking at throughout the week after I told Joe what to put in the worship folder, so my bad. But if you look there in 14 through 16, you can see who the king is. He's the epitomized citizen of Zion. He can withstand the fires of judgment. He walks in righteousness. He brings justice. He builds true defenses. He earns by the merit of his record good things for everybody around him. And y'all, that's not us. At least it's not me. Uh, But that's Jesus. But beholding him is also more than just looking at him. It's more than just seeing him and having some sort of intellectual assent to, yeah, he's out there. I I know the answers. I've got that. Uh, It's being captivated by him. It's looking at his beauty. That's what it says there. Behold the king in his beauty. And beauty, it's it's such a fascinating word to use there. You don't usually associate it uh, with a man. 
or at least we don't in our culture, but it is something that has an arresting and a paralyzing quality to it. When you see something beautiful, you stop and you behold it. My family loves to go and fish down uh, on the southwest coast of Florida, and we, at, at night, anytime it's clear, without fail, boats will pack the passes, people will stand on the beaches, they'll gather on balconies, and they'll look out over the gulf as the sun sets, and they're just captivated. They just have to stand and take in the beauty of the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico. And it's, it really is an incredible sight, and you'll just, people just go on cruises just to go look at it. They have to stop and take it in. They just have to look at the vastness and the beauty. And that's what beholding is. It's stopping to really take it in and realize the greatness of who our king is. And so I just have to ask, are you truly beholding him? Are you arrested by his beauty and who he is and what he's done on our behalf? Because beholding him, that's the only right strategy for salvation. He is the only place we get the spirit He's the only place we get the power to overcome sin and death. He's the only place that we get the utopian kingdom that we seek. We don't get the kingdom without the king. So what does it look like for us to truly behold the beauty of Jesus? What does that produce in our lives is the question. And I think verses 22 and or 20 through 22, key us in to what that is. If you look there, behold Zion, the city of appointed feast. It's an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent. And I think that that shows us the kind of people that are there. A city of feast, what is feasting? It's a, it's a celebration. That's why Jesus' marriage to us is an image in the Bible. Because joined to him, being joined to him is a celebration. It's something that should produce joy in your heart that the king of the universe, the creator of the universe, wants to be in a personal relationship with you. And that joy should pervade everything. It's a city of appointed feasts. All the time we're just celebrating. As an immovable tent, it produces in us an unflappable faith that makes us immovable through the storms and trials of life because we can rest in who he is and what he's done. In verse 14, it talks about walking through the fires of judgment. We can trust in him because he's the only one who can actually do that. He's the only one who has done it. We can trust because he hung on the cross and endured the greatest storm of all. He endured the judgment of God for our sins, that there's no threat of invasion or enemy that can overcome us because of his power and protection. He's already overcome our greatest enemies. And it produces an assurance of salvation if you look there. In verse 22, the Lord is our judge, lawgiver, king. He will save us. He is our savior. Those roles, they let us see who he is. He's one who protects and rules justly. We talk about absolute power corrupts absolutely as far as human rulers are concerned, but none of us actually have absolute power, and he does, and he is the most good person to ever live. He's our lawgiver. He gives us a law for our flourishing. It's, it's a handbook to show us the best way to relate to him and relate to others. He's the one who judges past mere action to the very heart behind those actions. And he's the one who saves us from the enemies we can never overcome. And that character, him, he is the one that brings the kingdom of God that we long for.
and our fulfillment of that desire for a perfect kingdom, for a perfect culture, it can really only come from an experience with him, a personal experience with the king who creates it. So we know we have to behold him. We know what it should produce, but what does the personal experience with him look like? If you jump back to the beginning of chapter 33 and verses 2 through 6, I think we can see that. Be gracious to us, Lord. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Beholding the beauty of our king lets us cry out to him because we know who he is. We can cry out to him in need. That's what Israel is doing here. The people turn back to him because they've come to the end of themselves, not because they really realize how beautiful he is at first. They have an enemy that they can't overcome standing at their front door, ready to take everything from them. And only in that moment when all their idols and strategies and schemes for self-salvation have failed is when they turn to the Lord and say, okay, now we really need you. (laughs) But despite that imperfect repentance, you can still see a genuine repentance. There is a genuineness to their faith that is, you're great, I'm not, you're good, I'm not, I need you. And I love the line, be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble, because that reference to the arm of the Lord is a reference to his strength that would go, his arm is what would go out and oppose the enemies of his people and conquer and judge. And every morning, it's, they're saying, at the time of our greatest threat of invasion, that's when it was most likely Assyria was going to attack them, is in the morning. At the greatest time of our need, we're trusting totally in you. They've come to the end of themselves and they know their need of him. And by knowing who he is, knowing his character, they can turn to him and say, we're helpless and we need you. And we know that you, God, are the only one both good enough and great enough to overcome our enemies. And as you continue in verse 3, it says, as he lifts himself up, nations are scattered. At the very sight of him coming in judgment, the enemies run away. They throw down their shields and swords and everything else and run the opposite direction. And the people of Jerusalem get to take everything from them. The enemy is just overwhelmed just by the sight of him, just by the thought of him coming. And when you, but when you know him, and you've beheld him in his beauty, and you're given the Holy Spirit, and then you get to see him rising up on your behalf to conquer those enemies for you. And we have nothing to fear because of that. It reminds me of uh, Aslan and Prince Caspian. If you're familiar with the Narnia series, Narnia has been oppressed by a neighboring country, and once they try and fight back, they become cornered, they're stuck in a cave, overwhelmed by an enemy that is way stronger than they are, and they can never hope to overcome them on their own. And as they're trapped there, they have no choice but to cry out and hope that somebody comes to save them. They'd come to the end of themselves and their scheming in their own power, and all they had left was hope. And just as the battle turns against them, just as it becomes its worst, Aslan comes running out of the woods and overwhelms the opposing army, and they throw all their swords and shields down, and they run away. And that's the picture that's here, y'all. They had to come to the end of themselves the end of their own strength, to see their need, and sometimes we do too. So have you had that experience with the Lord? Have you come to the end of yourself and your ability and know that he's your only hope for salvation? 
do you get to just come before him with need? Because that need is an invitation to see God's heart for you. To see his strength and his mercy. Because that same arm of strength that goes to overcome the enemies of God is the same one that gathers you close to him. That draws his people back to him. And you can see it in verse 5 and 6. If you look there again, he fills Zion with justice and righteousness. He is stability and peace. He is salvation. He is our treasure. All those things, uh, all the ideals of this perfect society that we long for, they're really just a side benefit of having his presence. That is the true gift. And you find it all the way back in Genesis. If you go back to God talking to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, he says, fear not, I will be your shield, your very great reward. He'd promised Abraham a lot of stuff. He'd be the father of a great nation. He'd basically be like a king. He would have a land all to himself. But the great promise that the Lord tells him is, I will defend you. And you will have my presence. I will be your gift. And that's what he's telling us now. Through Isaiah, he's telling us that the blessings of God, justice, peace, stability, rest, this utopian culture, they aren't the gift he is. And honestly, it wouldn't be much of a utopia without him. As the people of Israel come up to the edge of the promised land, God says, you know what, y'all are so stubborn and stiff-necked, I'm just going to send you ahead and I'm going to hang back here. And they turn to him and they say, no, it's not the promised land without you. It took a lot for them to realize that, but they finally got to that point where they knew they needed him. And I think Augustine sums it up well in his book, Confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Guys, you're never going to find rest in our own strivings and strategies of self-salvation, but the good news is you don't have to. You have a king who is good enough to come and die for you so that you can have rest. And the great hope is that we're reunited with God, the God who made us and who loves us. And through being with him, we find stability, salvation, peace, and know that he is our treasure. What John Lennon was dreaming of was the kingdom of God, and he just didn't know it. But here the Lord is telling us exactly where to find it. It's, it's found in his presence. It's found in knowing his beauty and beholding him and just knowing your need. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for just this time to be able to come together this morning and dwell on your word and just think about who you are as our king um, and just the beauty that comes along with that. I pray, Father, that reading uh, these words from Isaiah this morning, it just inspires uh, a love and affection in our hearts for you that lets us truly behold who you are, that we just stand in awe. It produces worship. Uh, Father, I pray also that you would just let us know our need. Uh, that need isn't a bad thing. Your son lived a life of total dependence on you. I do nothing of my own accord, but only the will of the Father who sent me. Let that be what we say. Uh, Father, take away from us our, our strivings to earn your love, to earn our salvation. You're so different than any other God that the world has ever tried to follow because you don't say, sacrifice for me. You say, I sacrifice for you. We obey from, not for. 
your love. And just let that be the reality that sits on our hearts. Let us find rest in that today and as we go throughout our week and just be captivated by who you are and your beauty. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This one last time. Um, as you go, if your faith is in Jesus, uh, receive this benediction. Uh, twofold purpose here. One is to remind you uh, that the work has been done if your faith is in Christ by grace. Uh, the second purpose, it's a word of sending to go be an agent of beholding uh, as, you, as you share the love of Christ with those around you. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's Amen. peace.